Hello, I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Editor-in-Chief of Annals of Internal Medicine. I'm here to give you a quick overview of the new material in the journal that you'll find if you go to annals.org. First is a longitudinal cohort study of persons with a history of injection drug use and hepatitis C infection. They found that more of these people are receiving hepatitis C virus treatment, and treatment is associated with significant reductions in liver disease and mortality. According to the authors, continued testing, treatment, and community-based interventions could lead to the elimination of hepatitis C virus infection in this population within the next decade. Hepatitis C virus infection is curable in about 95% of cases. The challenge is identifying people in the community with infection and connecting them with treatment. In high-income regions like the United States, many persons chronically infected with hepatitis C virus are people who inject drugs, and this population faces structural barriers to hepatitis C virus testing and treatment. They also have a disproportionate burden of comorbidities, such as HIV infection and alcohol use disorder, that may substantially alter the net effect of treatment on mortality. Researchers from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health studied 1,323 participants enrolled in the AIDS Link to the Intravenous Experience study from 2006 to 2019 in Baltimore, Maryland, to assess whether oral hepatitis C virus treatments were accessed by persons who inject drugs and if those treatments reduce liver disease burden and mortality. All participants studied had chronic hepatitis C virus infection. They were tested for hepatitis C virus RNA biennially from 2006 to 2012 and yearly from 2014 to 2019. The researchers found that with consistent testing and treatment, the proportion of participants in whom hepatitis C virus RNA was found decreased significantly from 100% of participants in 2006 to only 48% in 2019. Cirrhosis decreased from being present in 15% of participants in 2006 to 8% in 2019. According to the authors, given that 48% of participants in the sample remained chronically infected, their findings also underscore the heterogeneity of treatment uptake and the imperative to overcome residual barriers to eliminate hepatitis C virus infection in the United States. The nation's system of long-term services and supports face many challenges and need improvement to adequately care for an increasing number of older adults. A new American College of Physicians position paper provides recommendations about how to reform and improve the long-term services and support sector so that care is high quality, accessible, equitable, and affordable. Long-term services and supports can be delivered in nursing homes or other institutional settings, but they can also be delivered to patients who reside in their own homes. They include assistance with everyday tasks like bathing, eating, dressing, and other activities of daily living so that the individual can maintain or improve their quality of life. Accessing these services and supports can be extremely expensive depending on the level of care and individual needs and financial coverage of these services is complex and fragmented. ACP believes that the long-term services and support sector must be strengthened to ensure that patients can maintain quality of life while also retaining their financial stability as they age. July's in the clinic review is on bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder affects approximately 2% of the U.S. population and is the most expensive mental health condition for commercial insurers nationwide. 
Moreover, rates of bipolar disorder are elevated among individuals with depression, anxiety disorders, and substance use disorders, conditions frequently seen by primary care physicians. Additionally, antidepressants can precipitate hypomanic symptoms or rapid cycling in individuals with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Thus, screening for bipolar disorder in these three diagnoses and in those receiving antidepressants is indicated. Effective treatments exist for hypomania and mania, bipolar depression, and maintenance. Many such treatments can be safely and effectively administered by primary care physicians. Go to annals.org for a practical overview of the diagnosis and management of this condition. Next is a secondary data analysis of the coronary artery risk development in young adults lung study that found that emphysema is often detectable on CT scan before spirometry findings become abnormal. The findings of the study suggest that reliance on spirometry alone may result in the underrecognition of impaired respiratory health. Because the discrepancy is particularly marked in black men when race-adjusted spirometry measures are applied, this could exacerbate racial disparities in emphysema diagnosis and treatment. Researchers from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine conducted a secondary analysis of the cardiac lung study to determine the difference in emphysema prevalence between black and white adults with normal spirometry results. The study included 2,674 participants who received both the CT scan and spirometry. The authors found that a substantial proportion of middle-aged adults with normal spirometry findings based on race-specific equations had emphysema changes on CT scan, and the trend was disproportionately seen among black men even after adjusting for age and smoking status. The use of race-neutral equations to interpret spirometry reduced the racial disparity in emphysema prevalence among those with normal results, but did not eliminate it. These findings suggest that over-reliance on spirometry to diagnose emphysema, particularly with race-adjusted equations, may miss early signs of impaired respiratory health. Female physicians are a growing proportion of the clinician workforce, but many studies have shown that they are still paid less for similar work than their male counterparts. Part of this gap may be explained by compensation models that do not directly capture primary care effort and may favor traditionally male practice patterns. Compared with male physicians, female physicians conduct fewer but longer visits that involve more counseling and shared decision-making and spend more time on non-face-to-face -face care. These attributes are valued by patients and may be linked to better outcomes, but may not be valued by current payment models. The next study I'll highlight used a micro-simulation model and found that female primary care physicians make 21% less income than their male counterparts under productivity-based compensation models. Payment via capitation with risk adjustment for patient age and sex resulted in a smaller gender gap in compensation. The authors conclude their results highlight the need for explicit conversations about the societal and professional values and intentions underlying a given compensation approach. They add that an alternative payment model, such as age and sex-adjusted capitation that minimizes the gender wage gap, or future models that more directly capture primary care effort may be beneficial, not only from an equity standpoint, but also for retention of the increasingly female primary care workforce that is already disproportionately subjected to burnout. Also new on Annals.org is an on-being doctor essay about medical care of people in prison and Annals for Hospitalist Commentary on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, 
and the latest issue of ACP Journal Club. The latest Annals Consult Guys episode addresses portal vein thrombosis and also new is the 100th episode of Annals on Call. To celebrate this milestone, Dr. Center interviews three avid podcast listeners about how they incorporate podcasts into their learning and what attracts them to become a regular listener of a particular podcast. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org to access some of the new material I've highlighted here. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Legman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.